we'd like to introduce and thank Hughes Castell, a premier legal search firm in Asia and a pioneer in legal and compliance search in Greater China since 1986. Hughes Castell's trusted brand name gives it unparalleled ability to engage top-level legal talent in a broad spectrum of industries and commerce, including top Fortune 500 corporations, banks, and international law firms. I know I've personally worked with Hughes Castell before both as a candidate and as a client. I can assure everyone that their level of service is absolutely excellent through and through. So when something like COVID happens, when expats and people who are voluntarily lived in the country and the big proportion of them leaves, there is nothing to fall back on. There is the local Chinese population and there are the few foreigners who are left over, but very few young people who are entering a new career, very few, let's say, post-retirement professionals who could be called back to work. And this is why this could actually, if somebody wants to build a career in China, this could be a good time to try. I, I get emails uh, every week from people who say, listen, I, I do speak Chinese. I used to work in China where I'm just very strongly interested. Not all of them have an easy time finding the opportunity that, that they look for. But that's only because China is a huge and dynamic market. So basically it's two peas rolling in like a, a swimming pool sized pot. So until they find each other, it takes some time and takes some work. But otherwise, it's a very interesting time to be an expat in China right now. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Ganbei. I'm your host, Art Dicker. Today, we have the wonderful pleasure of being joined by Gabor Polch. He is the author of a, a great new book that's just come out called Dragon Suit, The Golden Age of Expatriate Executives in China. Welcome, Gabor. Oh, thank you for having me here. Yes, it's a pleasure. And you are actually the founder and general manager of Campanile Management Consulting. And I know, and some of the audience will recognize you as a frequent keynote speaker on intercultural leadership. And I know you often post about that topic on LinkedIn and other platforms and people follow what you post quite carefully with a lot of interest. So thank you so much for being on the show. And uh, we want to get right into the book because I'm, I've read it and it's myself being an expatriate in China for many years can relate to it. But I think it also, even for people who've lived there before, it's got a lot of good insights on what's going on, what thing, the way things used to be, the way things are changing for expatriates there as part of the broader changes that China is going through. And so my first question I wanted to ask, what inspired you to write this book? First of all, thank you very much for the encouragement at the beginning. So the book came out last week. And actually, yes, one of the feedback I get from some of the people who read the book and had been in China for over a decade, so they are not originally the intended audience, is that they the book helps them to rethink their time in China. And I'm absolutely delighted to hear that. So basically, the topic of the book, which is expatriate executives, and some other managers, we can talk about this later, in China is a doubly challenging topic because there are two things inside. One of them, living and working as an expat. So basically living in, a, in another country than your own. And then the other one is doing business in China. And both of them are fairly confusing. People need a lot of help with both of these things. Then when you put them together and you, you want to live as an expat and do a high-level management job in China it becomes especially challenging. Now, I spend a fair amount of my time working as an executive coach with 
prospective expats who are just about to be commissioned on an intercultural international assignment or people who have just arrived or sometimes people who have worked in an expatriate location for years, but now they are promoted to a higher level of leadership. And they tell me a lot about where they fail, where they succeed and how they get from the first one to the second one. But the problem with being a coach is that you operate under strict confidentiality. And therefore, you cannot share the stories you hear. So what inspired me to write the book is I was sitting there, I was discussing business in China with some CEOs, VPs, some high-level directors of companies. And I said, I wish I could share this with people who are trying to run businesses in China. When our coaching assignment was over, when it expired, then I went back to many of these executives and I asked them if I could put on my other hat and interview them as a writer. And many of them said yes and uh, appear in the book with their full name and positions. Some of them appear in the book with a kind of approximate name and description of what they do. But this time I have the right and the privilege to share these stories. And it comes through in the book. Stories always make it, make for a great book, and that comes through very clearly. What can you, not to steal the thunder of the book and, and people not read, end up reading the book, but if you were, could break down the key points, right? So if key lessons that you learn from those conversations and coaching and insights that people found the most useful over the years from the, the people that you coached over the years. The way I have to imagine it is because being an expat in a uh, faraway country in this case, because many of the expats that I interviewed were at least from Europe, but sometimes from places like Brazil, which are really far from China indeed, is a very human genre. It's really uh, storytelling at its best, in my opinion, because you really have to look deep into not just the business of these people, but also the family life, health all kinds of psychological pressures and worries and triumphs and accomplishments as well, is that I decided to structure the book not according to, let's say, lessons learned from a business perspective, but the life cycle of an expat assignment. And one of the things that I learned from the interviews is that an expat assignment doesn't start when somebody arrives in a certain country. I learned half of that lesson already as a coach because I strongly encourage companies to start working with people well before they arrive in a country. And then, for example, some of my diplomat friends, they have half a year, one year to prepare for an assignment. But in the corporate world, usually we don't have that much time to prepare. So when I start the story of an expat executive in the book, their story doesn't start with when I arrived in China. But I always ask them, what was your first reaction when the possibility of relocating to China came up and they tell me fascinating things. And then you can read them in the book about what was their impression in China at that time. And then we progress in the book onwards towards how multinational companies select, how do they earmark the people who are supposed to go to China? How did they get their assignments? Why did they say yes? Why do they say no? Some of them said no before they said yes, before they ended up in China. <laughs> And then when you, how do you relocate? What did you leave behind? We leave family members behind. We leave a professional network behind. It's not always an easy decision to make, however juicy and promising the China assignment is. 
Then we look at how people started up, where they sent their kids to school, what was their first impression about their Chinese or international team, where did they live, how do they commute, and not all of them arrive from their home countries. So there is, for example, an Italian executive who arrived in China from uh, India. And then the transition is a completely different one from some for another one actually in the book who came from China. Then we start going into businessy aspects like, for example, teamwork, the level of intimacy, how expats have to work differently with hierarchy in China. Then we go into a couple of serious challenges of working in China as an expat. Two of them specifically is air pollution and restricted access to internet and how people deal with it. Then we are at chapter four now, which is the penultimate chapter, which is about being promoted into ever higher levels of leadership positions in China and what are the new challenges that expats face as they want to take or have to take more responsibility. And the final chapter is basically the down curve of an expat assignment. And this is either being replaced by another expat and then what changes or being replaced by a local executive, which happens more and more often these days. And also what are the challenges of relocating to your own country or translocating to a new expat assignment. And also in this chapter, people can find out what happened to the people that I interviewed in the book. Yeah, we've, we're going to get into all of those topics here in a bit more detail, as much as you're willing to share without uh, leaving something for people still in the book to read. But there's the, the, mostly the, the stories that are worth checking out, I think, and then the insights that come out of those. Going back to, to what you said earlier, you mentioned that in the book itself, that there's it's difficult for companies to find candidates that have both kind of the experience that that and the cultural sensitivities that would let them more easily adapt than other candidates. And so I wonder if you could could share some insights into how companies go about selecting candidates and what things tend to make candidates better candidates than others for these kinds of roles. To answer that first, we have to look at how it's working now. And what we have to know is that expat assignments are almost like, a, if you imagine a pie chart, about one third of expat assignments fail in one way or another. So basically the expats do not manage to meet their performance requirements and or relocate early. Basically they end their assignment prematurely. And then there is a middle one third, which works out all. And then there is one third that works out extremely well. And I try to compare how these stories differ from each other. And what I find, and I'm not going to give too much away here, so it's, it's not a thriller where the murder is the gardener. If I tell you <laughs> this, then nobody's going to read the book. But basically what happens is that companies that, that earmark and choose and send over expats based on simply track record of technical performance, that usually doesn't work out that well. Companies that select expats based on willingness to become an expat, that usually doesn't work out that well. So expertise and willingness is basically not enough. But companies have to look at who has the flexibility and who has certain characteristics that are in alignment with the culture where you are sending somebody. It's not necessarily the country. You can look at corporate culture. You can look at culture of the, the city in question. But who has a basic alignment with, with the culture that is going to welcome the expat? And that can be because somebody is temperamentally, let's say, flexible. 
That can be because somebody was a third culture kid. That uh, mm -hmm. can be because somebody has already successfully completed previous expat assignments. Mm -hmm. The trap here is that very often we have the wrong idea about, and I'm using air quotes here, if somebody's listening to the podcast cannot see here, about Chinese culture. So very mm -hmm. often we operate and, and companies themselves, and sometimes the expat as well, operate on stereotypes about Chinese culture, that it's a culture of harmony, it's a culture of people obediently following omnipotent leaders and so on. And very often we find out it's not like that at all. The places where usually expats go, like Shanghai and Shenzhen, people know what they want, they are ready to fight for it, it's, they are very dynamic environments. And companies have to select people according to those criteria, not necessarily the Confucian manual of uh, doing business in China. And then those criteria, once we accept them, they are fairly easy to map. So this is what I do as a coach. Uh, we use uh, certain behavioral assessments. We use certain intercultural uh, leadership tools to tell who is going to be more happy and productive in this environment than others. Yeah, and you, you mentioned, when you mentioned happy and productive, um, That's I imagine that's both an on-the-job kind of ability, but there are probably some other factors that are that affect someone's happiness overall in the placement. And I mean, family is a big part of that. I think food and language some, for some people is more frustrating than others. You mentioned a lot of the diplomats have much more time to prepare. I, they, I, I as I recall, in the State Department, uh, having many friends gone through that program, the, the, they have a year or so to to learn the language and everything that as part of their rotation, they're constantly on those rotational assignments. Whereas, as you said, someone else is just who has time to do that in a corporate role. So I'm, I'm wondering, what are some of those other non-work factors that make China an interesting or a challenging assignment for an expatriate? The interesting thing is that I very often work with high-level managers who come from a world where culture is uh, considered uh, a little bit artsy-fartsy, uh, unmeasurable, mysterious thing. So I like sitting down with them and try to make it a little bit more real. So I tell them, listen, let's look at a reference tool like the HSBC Expert Explorer, which is it's made by a bank. And let's look at what kind of life are you going to live in China? So why is it that expats go there and what kind of lifestyle do they have to anticipate? And if you look at China, what you are going to see is you are going to live a fast-paced life. You are going to work most of the time. You are going to find it difficult to separate private and uh, professional life. So uh, somebody who comes from a country like Germany or Italy where there is a quite strict separation. So basically, if they invite you to a wedding, in cultures where you wouldn't talk about business at that wedding is, is a good, how do you say, marker of how separate they are. So this is extremely important. And this is also why you don't know what is non-work factors and what are the work factors. Then people have to get used to the scale of China. You have to get used to the scale of China because when you go to a meeting or you visit somebody, you usually spend an hour on the road one way or another. This can be a challenge. Since usually one spouse, let's say in a family, is the working spouse, the other stays at home, this is also, you have to organize the family in a different way. Like executives in China, they have a tendency to work long nights. So how does the family live their life in a different way? You also have to redesign 
certain concepts in your head because, for example, a lot of foreigners know that China is a network-based culture. And that is true. You must have a good network, both for business and for organizing your private life. But many of them misunderstand how this network is going to work because most expats in China network with other expats in China rather than the local population, even if they speak the language uh, to some extent. So these are the very concrete, hard-nosed factors that I like preparing people for. It's interesting that point about the network, because in my own experience, six years in-house at a multinational company for, as their Asia Pacific general counsel, but still a member of the local executive team and so forth. To me, the value of expatriates or just general managers in, ge in general that, that are the bridge back to headquarters for the local staff, the value that I was, and I wonder if other, you found this in other stories and other examples that you've gone through over the years, is... Especially someone like myself, you're right, exactly. My my network is not necessarily a Chinese network. It's an expatriate ne network. Or, but one thing I do have that's unique about my network is that I have a network back to the US in the headquarters. And I think that comes through both literally, I know more people back there, but also for whatever reason, I think a lot of it is language. It's just as much as culture. I can communicate better back with headquarters. So what I found is that People valued me not be, not because of any network I had in China, but people valued me as a bridge back to communicate for them. For example, the local sales team saying, hey, we're not as bad as headquarters thinks we are on compliance and so forth. Or even the general manager who was not getting his message across because of language issues or whatever, using me to help him get his message across. And I know him because I work with him every day. So I wonder if, if, a, general, if a general manager is an expatriate is that just as much of a valuable role of being a voice for the local team back to headquarters? Absolutely. This is absolutely true. So more than one of the managers that you will read about in the book arrived in China with the assumption that they are there to get things done and to shape the Chinese operations to the shape of the American operations or the Italian or the German or the Brazilian operations. And very soon they found out that's not what they are there. So the interesting thing is, People are very different and they zero in on different things. So what hit them the most at the beginning is usually what they learned in China eventually. So if people were very frustrated because of the restricted internet and because they couldn't use local internet tools like WeChat, for example, and the local payment app, then after a couple of years, this is exactly what they learned and admired in China. Those people who are more uh, social-minded rather than practical-minded, what bothered them is that there was a visible distance between themselves, other experts, and, and local people. Uh, you're perfectly right. It's partly because of language, but not exclusively because of language. Then they learned how to approach people, not just from China, but from other otherwise challenging cultures better. Now, what you said is extremely important for the future of multinational companies in China, because this is why they found out that localizing expat positions has lots of benefits. Basically, replacing expat positions with local Chinese managers have lots of benefits because you don't have to uh, pay those expat benefits like relocation and insurance and international education. Yeah. And indeed, Chinese managers speak much better Chinese and understand China better, and they have the local network. But there are very few Chinese managers who can keep this constructive contact, this kind of mediation 
with headquarters and other locations of the same multinational company. And if an international manager learns how to represent China fairly towards headquarters and other locations, and how to represent those locations and headquarters in China, then they have the winning ticket of building a career. But you will see how much people have to learn to be able to do that and how much they have to learn to overwrite their own, how do you say, prejudices about China, the ones that they have before. And you will read in the book, people admit after even one or two years in China how little they knew about the country and how judgmental they were about the country. So I'm, this one, this time I'm not going to tell you what exactly she said, but there is a, a Brazilian CFO who tells me exactly what her first thought was when uh, she found out that she might relocate to China. And you will love, if you read the book, it is this kind of very disturbing stereotype about China. And she became one of the biggest fans in the book. You are going to see how much empathy she built up towards the culture later on. Additional sponsorship from JetIT Services. JetIT is a one-stop source built to provide enterprise-grade IT and communication services and supplies required to compete in today's China business environment. JetServices.com.cn So that's interesting. I wonder, because you mentioned the localization, and um, certainly like that, I saw that in my own life, I think I was one of the last kind of I was the last true foreigner in our company there before I left. And we had Hong Kongese Chinese and Taiwanese Chinese and Singaporeans and so forth, but culturally Chinese in, in many, in, for all intents and purposes. So that trend has been started, had started well before in different roles. I think maybe legal was one of the last roles to, for that to happen. Now, do you see, I almost read into what you're saying that the pendulum might be swinging back just a little bit. Obviously COVID made it very difficult to bring expats in the last three or four years now, but do you see any companies considering taking positions which have already been localized and putting an expat in there again, or is that ship completely sailed already? In my experience, localization is almost always irreversible. So once a, a position has been localized, because from the perspective, you have to imagine it like this. Let's say you are a Chinese manager who took over a, a previously expat position. And that basically means that you started running the organization with a more Chinese mindset. One of the huge problems in multinational companies for a very long time was this so-called glass ceiling. So very talented people joined multinational organizations. They look, looked up towards the higher echelons of leadership, and then they realized, I'm never going to make CFO in this company. I'm never going to make VP of anything in this company because they are all foreigners. And this is a very important question beyond all the expat budgets and so on. Once a local manager takes over a former expat position, that problem is solved, basically. And that's a huge step ahead for the China compatibility of the company. But then again, you are still building a multinational organization. And then you will, the companies will very soon find out, for, for example, that people who have a passport from the People's Republic of China, they need a visa to almost absolutely everywhere. China ranked something like 80th in the strength of passport index last year, which means that it's fairly difficult to travel. There are not enough people in China who speak English. They are not, there are not enough people who speak other foreign languages as well because the outward-facing economy grows much quicker than the talent pool in China. So 
and not to mention the multinational companies themselves whose industry, such as chemical industry, for example, electric vehicles, pharmaceutical, and so on, they are very important ones and dynamically growing ones in China. So companies like BASF, companies like the truck maker Scania, they are currently building huge manufacturing plants in China. And they will need foreigners as well because they bring some of the know-how from outside. So this is a very interesting dynamic. And these companies will need foreign talent. Now, the interesting thing is that the demographics of foreign talent is changing because let's call them advanced economies or G7 economies or whatever it is, places like Germany, the United States, Japan, South Korea, the number of expats from these countries is decreasing in China, whereas the number of foreigners who come and work in China from the so-called global south is increasing in the meantime. So very often what is happening is that if a multinational, let's say automotive or pharmaceutical company wants to hire somebody locally who has a foreign passport and has a good command of a couple of languages that the company needs, let's say they speak English and French very well, increasingly that person is not going to be English or French. Maybe it's going to be Vietnamese who learned French at university or is going to be from another country, which is not necessarily the countries that pop to mind when we talk about expats in China. That's interesting. And you're talking about, so for multinational companies. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder, you almost think that multinational companies have, I, I think what you're getting at is also is that multinational companies realize there's a, co- a huge cost to these placements. And so f- folks maybe from different countries maybe have different expectations on package coming over from the US, for example, there, there was obviously always the expectation of, like you said, housing and education for kids and so forth, which is, I imagine, double or triples the cost of the overall placement compared to a local hire. Um, so that's interesting. I noticed that mm-hmm. as well. And in, in the last few years, I was there, a lot of expatriates were you know, young and unattached. And and then those are a lot more affordable, obviously, from an overall cost perspective. I wonder yes. if for these folks... Because you and I both have a lot of friends who were at these uh, in these positions, and the challenge is always going back. So as you can correct me on how, how it typically works, but from my understanding is you either have expatriates who are brought in on a typical two or three year assignment, almost like a rotational assignment, and there's usually a position, either either there is a solid position waiting for them back headquarters or at another location like India or something. Or there's an understanding that something will be found for them when their term, their contract expires. But then you have long-term expats who are there, who have worked for multinational companies, maybe for whatever reason, they were locally hired or they love the country, they want to stay, their family enjoys living there. How do those people adapt to the changing environment for expats in China? And I'm talking about the more experienced group, right? So many of our Yeah, friends. absolutely. So, Yes. These are all about choices. As an executive coach, this is why I come into the picture. What can I teach, let's say, a CFO or a VP about their business that they don't know already? It's these kind of human choices when people lose their self-confidence and they need some support. So let's say you will read about more than one of the expats in the book who arrived in a classic multinational job which basically means they relocate you to China. They 
it's not only that they pay for your apartment, you don't even have to look for an apartment. Sometimes it has been arranged before you arrive in the country, you know where your kids are going to school, you have a driver, you have a housekeeper and so on and so forth. But more than one of them shares the experience that once this expat package runs out, because the company eventually wants to make them run out. So you have a couple of choices then, right? You can try to find another company that hires you as an expat, but that's more difficult because all of the companies are phasing out these expat packages. You can switch to a local contract. So basically it means comparable salary, comparable benefits, but you don't have all of those things like the relocation, like the um, twice a year ticket back home, international education and so on. So you can switch there. You can, you can leave and become an entrepreneur. You can try to work for Chinese companies, which is another interesting story, or you can leave the country. And then there are lots of different pros and cons about all of these. The biggest demographic for companies, international companies in China for a long time was locally hired foreigners on a local contract. So this is, for example, why it is a, a confusing term if you're an expat or not. If you, let's say, leave one Italian car company as an expat and you're hired by another Italian company on a local contract, but most people would still call those people expats. If you, let's say, you are not going to find your way in, in either of these ways, that's when you relocate home. And that's when it, that has its challenges as well, because China is usually a career booster. The moment you arrive in China, whatever your responsibility was at home, you have 10 times the responsibility. If you had 100 people report to you in Italy or in Holland, then you have 10 times as many in China. If you, in greenfield investments, you had to deal with the size of a couple of soccer fields. Now you have to deal with the size of a, a small village. So when you come back, of course, you bring such expertise about this to make investments, to make decisions fast, flexibly, based on limited data. You learn all of this. It can be tremendous. But there are two very big challenges. Number one, you lost your network at home. So there is not always a comfortable position to return to. And the second thing is, and as a coach, I deal with this again and again with repatriating expat executives, is that what people learned in China, they have a tendency to try to install them in their home countries. And this is not always an absolutely welcome message. In places like Germany, United States, and Japan, Sometimes people hate saying, I think we should really do this like we do it in China because the perceptions in China are completely days, different. Yes. yes, exactly. And this is why people who are building a long-term career in China, who are not think about, thinking about repatriating anymore, maybe they established a family in China, they bought property in China, they learned the language so fluently that they can make keynote speeches uh, at conferences in Mandarin. That's why they are so important for the for that kind of mediation between China and the rest of the world, because they have a much stronger international network and exposure than local Chinese managers, but they have much more empathy towards China than the average, let's say, three years here and I'm going home kind of expat. Yeah, oh, absolutely. That's, that is, and again, like anecdotally, that's how I see a lot of people who, like you said, have family, or property or just a cultural attachment and don't want to lose that, keep themselves relevant. And so that's the role that they can fill, right? So that might mean, as you said, becoming a little more entrepreneurial in some kind of 
service function consulting and, and whatnot. And, and, and there's a, a very big role for that. Now, maybe you're not, you're no longer with 3M or GE or something like that, but you're helping mid-level companies that don't, are never going to have someone that they're going to place over as an expat or not going to have some, that kind of multicultural capability internally. So that's, that's, there is a role for these kinds of people. I can also certainly relate to people having struggling going back and either they, they sound too positive on China or the lessons they try to impart are falling on deaf ears, or there's no real role for them that uses any of the skills. Even if the company would be open to that, there's just no natural position for these people to slot back mm -hmm. into. Sorry, you were about to say. First of all, you never know what kind of career opportunities you have in China as long as you put in the work. So one of the executives interviewed in the book is at the time when I interviewed him, he was the CFO of a large European fashion brand. And he arrived in the country as an entrepreneur. He started up a small service company. He ran it for a while. And because of the languages that he spoke and because of the expertise, he ran a financial services company before. So he knew his numbers. Basically, a company from his home country approached him and he said, could you please come on board as the CEO of, a, of an expanding fashion brand that we really need somebody to run the financial operations? Also, you are going to find people who, during the COVID years, when the bigger half of the expat population of China left, they managed to turn this into an opportunity to upgrade their job because suddenly mm -hmm. there was a huge shortage of people with certain level of exposure to international business. Again, language knowledge, a certain kind of passport, somebody who has a good network and somebody who frankly just is willing to stay in China and work with a rapidly changing environment. Now, one interesting thing about China that lots of people don't know is that China doesn't have second generation foreigners. Whichever country you are in, as you're listening to this podcast, you can go downstairs and you can go to a shop which uh, is run by a family, which is an immigrant family or has been there for many generations, but basically preserved their cultural identity and they send their kids to good schools and they speak the local language fluently, but basically they are citizens like anybody else. In China, there are no multi-generation foreigners because Every couple of decades, something happened politically in China that made foreigners leave. So when something like COVID happens, when expats and people who are like voluntarily lived in the country and the big proportion of them leaves, there is nothing to fall back on. There is the local Chinese population and there are the few foreigners who, who were left over, but very few young people who are entering a new career, very few, let's say, post-retirement professionals who could be called back to work. And, and this is why this could actually, if somebody wants to build a career in China, this could be a good time to try. Mm -hmm. And now yeah. that now not everybody, I, I get emails uh, every week from people who say, listen, I, I do speak Chinese. I used to work in China where I'm just very strongly interested and uh, they would like to give it a try. Not all of them have an easy time finding the opportunity that, that they look for. But that's only because China is a huge and dynamic market. So basically, it's two peas rolling in like a, a swimming pool-sized pot. So until they find each other, it takes some time and takes some work. But otherwise, it's a very interesting time to be an expat in China right now. Yeah, I, I think that's a good point. There's Even if the economy is not growing like it was before, obviously, and international trade and international investment flows are not what they were before, you still have all, there's no shortage of new kind of uh, cultural and political 
challenges that need a bridge role. And, and that could be a young person just as well. And that kind of gets me to my last question, which is we touched on it a bit earlier, but I think it's worth um, discussing a bit more about the role that expats or quote expats may play in working at Chinese companies. Because as we can, as we know, Chinese companies certainly there's many good reasons for them to expand out of China. They are expanding out of China, but they don't necessarily have that in-house managerial pool that multinational companies have where someone spent time in another developing market before, like you, you mentioned. So is there a role for uh, expats to play young or old, more experienced at these Chinese companies? This is a, a tough time to ask this question. Mm. And all I can say is that I hope there is. Because so on one hand, there are some rain clouds over our heads, because if you look at Chinese companies with international ambitions, I arrived in China in 2002, one year after China joined the World Trade Organization, the WTO. Mm -hmm. And most Chinese companies, these up and coming superstar Chinese companies were just busy serving the local market. They didn't care too much about the international market because it, the local market was so huge, so underserviced, and they had so little experience with international business that that moving abroad was or spreading abroad was the last thing on their minds. Uh, and then there was a huge upsurge of companies, not just companies, but also different kinds of services. So think Alibaba, how they started offering cloud services worldwide. Think about car companies from China starting to make become successful abroad. Think about like the payment system, Union Pay, how you can withdraw cash all over the world uh, using Union Pay. And now Chinese companies are in a kind of identity crisis because of the political environment, not just at the pandemic, but this started much longer ago. It started, I think, something like eight years ago when, for example, Chinese companies investing in entertainment worldwide became unwelcome with the moral code of the Communist Party. And then very recently, technology companies were stopped from listing at international stock exchanges. So now it is a more sensitive time to ask this question. And obviously, putting foreigners in charge is always a little bit of political risk. Mm. Now, here come the good news, because first of all, Chinese companies generally, when they went abroad, they were much better at involving international managers from the very beginning than, let's say, Japanese companies in the 80s and 90s. You probably remember, we are roughly the same generation. You probably remember when, when Japanese companies established something overseas or bought an international company, they just put the Japanese managers in charge mm -hmm. and tried to run everything the Japanese way. They make movies about that in the US. When when China bought Volvo, they, they didn't try to run it the Chinese way. They just tried to build a great company and they actually managed. And also, there is a big future for Chinese companies because they do things that, that let's say, when we talk about cars or solar panels... Local European companies or American companies cannot do. Now, after the pandemic, I spend more time in Europe. And the new clients who found me recently are predominantly Chinese companies mm -hmm. with international ambitions. Mm -hmm. Now, the catch here is in order for talented international managers to work for Chinese companies, the, the culture of the Chinese companies must change a little bit starting from very basic legal things like how do you motivate and how do you compensate 
people like and also what is the relationship between bosses and people who report to them and so on but i think there is a future here because chinese people do realize i spent time in companies like electric car manufacturing companies telecom companies and so on and they do realize that they must build an international workforce not only abroad but even within china in order to be successful abroad. One, one thing that I can tell anybody, if you want to work for a Chinese company, just learn Chinese extremely well. So that yeah. is, uh, in that respect, let, let's not hope that those companies become so international that you can get away with English. Because if you look at the same history in large international companies from Europe, for example, German car companies and pharmaceutical companies have gone international much longer ago and they still struggle with the language issue or Italian companies or Brazilian companies. So that is going to take long. So imagine if you want to find an opportunity there, then I think fluent Mandarin is a prerequisite. Yeah. And then I think that's true now for multinational roles. Many, if you're looking to work there as a foreigner, I think if you don't, if you don't speak Chinese you're just going to slow down the local team. The local team doesn't want to speak English because it's just, I think in the, in my experience, it's if one person has to speak English in the meeting, then it just, then everyone has to switch to English. Nine out of 10 people speak Chinese. It, there's a group of people that might want to speak English, but I think that's once in a while to practice their English. In my experience, people, people want to speak Chinese mm. because the meeting will take half as long to get through it. Yeah. In my opinion, there is a trend here. The bigger the city, the higher level the job, and the shorter the assignment, the more you can get away with working in English. Yeah. If you go to an Italian fashion company or if you go to American car company and you part you participate in a meeting in, in, in Shanghai or Beijing with extremely high-level executives who are only there to run the business for a couple of years, usually... The local workforce or the international workforce has to accommodate them and have to talk in English. But the more you are going towards the operations, let's say the manufacturing operations or the distribution, smaller and smaller cities, the more you are working with the local workforce, obviously, and the, the longer term the assignment, the more you must expect people to speak uh, good Chinese. And this is happening. So one thing that you will learn in the book that... There is a comparison between China CEOs in China. So over time, and actually high-level executives of multinational companies in China do up their skills in terms of Mandarin. It is really now, if when I arrived in China 20 years ago, to hear a, a, a German or Russian CEO speak fluent Chinese, it was one in a million. The, it turned heads. Now it's not so rare anymore. I'm not saying it's, it's the standard, but it's not so rare anymore. And that's a great thing. Yeah, it's very much needed, I think. And it's a, it's almost respect for the culture in some ways too. Like China's not a, a small country anymore economically and of political importance and so forth. It's, I think, it's for especially Americans, we're so bad at learning languages. It's about time that we, we uh, people learn a little more at languages, including Chinese, and especially if you want to work abroad. That's part of it. That is part of it. And then the other side of it is if you look at how multinational companies operate in China, 
because of Chinese legal requirements, they more and more have to operate like local firms. Sure. So that 20 years ago, there was this uh, crazy system of representative offices. You didn't even have mm -hmm. to register a proper company. So you could build a bubble and that was fine. Now companies have to operate through properly registered local entities. They have to comply with local regulations much more. And then it also means that if you're a CEO or CFO, you want to know what's happening around you in Chinese. You want to take a look at those contracts that are written in Mandarin. You want to be part of a, a local professional association that doesn't run in English. So that is obviously a, I would say, a success factor now. These are, they're, they're, there's so much to unpack here. I think let's save it for the book, for the readers. Dragon Suit, The Golden Age of Expatriate Executives in China. I think it's out now. I encourage people to get it. We will post a link to it in the show notes of, of where you can order a copy. We'll post it as well when we promote the, the episode on our website and on, on LinkedIn and other platforms. It's a wonderful book. I've read it. I would encourage everyone that's listening to, to go out and buy it. Gabor, how should people if they want to learn more about the book or if they want to reach out to you for speaking engagements and so forth, is LinkedIn the best way to reach out to you or do you have better your website or? Actually, my first name and family name is a fairly unique combination. So the standard way is just whatever uh, search engine you're using, just type in Gabor Holsch, which is my full name, and you will find it in the show notes. And then I will pop up in one way or another. You will find one of my websites where you can send me a, through the contact form. You can send me an email. LinkedIn is indeed one way. The other way is type in Dragon Suit and see what happens to you. You will have to scroll down through pictures of sweet kids trick-or-treating in Dragon Suit costumes. <laughs> and then at one point the uh, cover of the book Dragon Suit is going to pop up. It's not so far down, actually. It is because of search engine optimization. It's actually <laughs> becoming easier and easier to search by the book title. Awesome. Yeah, I'm sure as the book becomes more popular now that it's out, you'll kick those kids off the, the top of the page for those search results. <laughs> kids are good at search engine optimization, so I, I think I will gain rank, but I will never outrank them. The yeah. Fair enough. It's been a pleasure to have you on. It's uh, You've been on the show once before, and, and also I would encourage people to go back and look for that episode as well. Thank you so much for joining us. You know that 8 out of 10 China expats want to invest their RMB savings, but don't know where to start. Are you looking for more flexibility when investing without foreign exchange, long-term contracts, or complicated products? Expat Invest can help. Expat Invest provides a simple online investment platform for expats based in China. Buy and sell anytime. Search for Expat Invest China and enter promo code GANBEI at checkout for up to 3,000 RNB invested fee free forever. That's promo code GANBEI at checkout at expatinvestchina.com.